Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We're going to read the Bible now, uh, and we're going to look at the book of Malachi. So if you are following along there, uh, we're looking at Malachi 3, 13 through to the end of the book, but it's also going to be on the screen. This is what it says. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Good morning, Southside. My name's Sam. It's my great privilege this morning to open God's word with you and take you through this passage. Why don't we pray as we come before the Lord now? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you do speak to us through your word, that your word is living and active. We pray, Lord, that this morning you would uh, give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to this word today. Remind us of how big you are, Lord God, and we ask these things for the glory of Jesus in his name. Amen. Have you ever had that experience uh, where where you picture in your mind how big something is, and then, then you go and see it, and it ends up being so much bigger than you thought it would be. This has happened to me uh, many times, but the one that sticks with me the most uh, happened when I was in grade 10. Mum and Dad and I, we're on a four-week holiday, and we're going through Central Australia, and, and for weeks, I've been getting excited to go and visit Uluru. I'd seen heaps of pictures of this iconic landmark, as I'm sure you have too, I'm excited, I've I've built up the idea in my mind, I'm pumped, I'm exhilarated, I can't wait to go and see this rock that's the size of my house. Well, that's how big I've built it up in my mind, because it's hard to know exactly how big something is when you just have photos to go by. Anyway, we finally get to the car park at Uluru, and I can't believe my eyes. I'm absolutely gobsmacked at how enormous this rock is. 
It's huge. I'm looking at this thing and I'm thinking, this, this rock makes my house look like a Lego brick. To put it into perspective for you, and in case you had never been to Uluru or never been to my house growing up, it takes, it takes me about one and a half minutes to walk around my parents' house. It took my parents and I about four hours to walk around Uluru. It's absolutely massive. Before I went to Uluru, my picture of it was quite small in comparison to how it actually is. Have you ever done that before? you ever had a picture in your mind of how big something's going to be, but then in reality, you realize you weren't even close? We make this mistake all the time, don't we? And so often we do the same thing to God, don't we? How big is your picture of God? And is your picture of God really doing justice to how big he actually is? So this is the problem that we face when, when we read this passage at the end of the book of Malachi. The Israelites, they have a small picture of God. And God calls them out on it. Malachi chapter 3, verse 13 says, You've spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. God's calling them out on their arrogance. And what is arrogance? Well, it's when you make yourself look bigger than you actually are. And this is going against their relationship with God. You, you've spoken arrogantly against me, says God. In order to make themselves look bigger than they actually are, they need to make their picture of God smaller than it actually is. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You've said it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Do you see what they're doing? Well, not only have they made their picture of God small, but they think that they can step over the boundaries that he's put in place. They've convinced themselves that their way is better than God's way. And they've convinced themselves that there's a better life to live outside God's boundaries. Because if you make your picture of God small, it's not that hard to think that you can step over his boundaries. They're thinking, serving God feels pointless. But if we go outside God's boundaries, life's so much easier and better. And God won't mind if we do that because, you know, we're, we're his chosen people. He'll forgive us and keep loving us. In their arrogance, they've made themselves think they're bigger than God that they can decide what's good instead of honoring the boundaries God set for them. Their picture of themselves is big and their picture of God is small. And having such a small view of God isn't good. We see from the passage that it goes against God. These Israelites are dodgy. They think they can put God in a box and walk all over his rules. Their heart attitude towards serving him is, is in the wrong place. They think they can, that just because they're his people, it gives them the right to offer him sloppy service. They think it's a waste of time serving God. Their hearts just aren't in how they're serving. 
These Israelites are supposed to be the ones who, who connect God to the rest of the world. They know him. He's chosen them so that they might know him. And they're supposed to make him known to the nations, to the whole world. The other nations are supposed to look at the Israelites and see how good God is, how loving and how awesome God is because of how blessed and satisfied they are as they live in his presence. And yet they've made God look small. They don't care about making him look impressive. They only care about making themselves look impressive. And when they look at the work they're doing to serve God, they're, they're saying it feels like death. Like they're walking around like mourners. It's there in verse 14. Their, their service is meant to bring life, yet it feels like death. Why? It's not because God's lost control of the situation. It's not because God's unable to bless them and satisfy them. No, God's not become small. But their picture of God, their idea of God, has become small. They've shrunk him down. They've cut him back and they've made him less than he is. So that in their arrogance, they can make themselves look bigger. And naturally, because they've made themselves look bigger, they, they can't see the value in, in serving God anymore because giving God more would mean giving me less. So the question at this point isn't, can you do this? It's not, can you put God to the test and get away with it? But the question we've got to ask is, what's God going to do in response? How's God going to respond? And Malachi is showing us that that's the question we should be asking at this point. What's God going to do in response to our arrogance? Because it's not just these Israelites who have this problem, is it? You look at our Australian culture and you tell me who has a big picture of God. When you look at your own day-to-day -day life, does it reflect that you've got a big picture of God? We often think we do. I think it all the time. But my life, your life doesn't reflect that does it instead our lives just paint a small picture of god because we're all moving boundaries and we all think that we can get away with it when we do we all think it's okay but what we see here is god's not okay with it so the question remains what's god going to do in response to our arrogance Well, what we see from chapter 4, verse 1, is that when you mess with the bull, you get the horns. God's got a plan for those who think he's small and who treat him as though he's small. 4, verse 1, Surely the day is coming, says God. It'll burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that's coming will set them on fire says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. God's saying to these guys, you want to think I'm small and movable, arrogant Israel? Think again. A day is coming soon when I'm going to show you how big I really am. And anyone who thinks they're bigger and better than me, the arrogant, the evildoer, you're all going to be cooked 
God's deadly serious about the attitude that's on display here. And a day is coming when he's going to expose these arrogant people who are making a small picture of him. Now, when I read these words in chapter 4, verse 1, it, it reminds me of something I did when, when I was a teenager. Not particularly proud of. And my parents, they, they have one of these uh, wood fires in their house. You know, the ones with the glass door on the front. And I've, I've just been asked to, to put another log on the fire. So I pick up this log from the wood box and, and clinging to the other side is this massive huntsman spider. So what do I do? Well, I throw the log into the fire with the spider still clinging onto it. I shut the door of the fire and, and I sit there and I just watch as this spider burns to death. It doesn't take very long because the heat in this fire, it's like a furnace, right? It's so intense that the spider just shrivels and burns and then it's gone like it was never there. Malachi 4, it's not talking about spiders, is it? It's talking about people. How do you react to that? And it's God who's speaking here. How do you react to that? Surely any small picture we have of God at this point is getting bigger. Because that's who he is. He's a big God who hates arrogance and wickedness and who holds all life in his hands and it would be no effort for god whatsoever to incinerate the whole world in the blink of an eye and that's what he wants these people to know here that he's not a small god who can be pushed around he's much bigger than they're making him out to be but his words in 4 verse 1, that they're more than just a threat against arrogance. It's a real warning for these people. Because the day really is coming when these arrogant people will face the fire. The day is coming for these people. But this isn't the only portrait we get of God in this passage. He's not only a big God who hates arrogance. He's not only a big God who, who judges sin. To see God as only these things is still having a small picture of him. He may be fierce and powerful and able to incinerate people at his command, but he's actually so much bigger than that. He's also a big God who loves. He's also a big God who cherishes. He is both fierce and loving. And unless these two things are held together, our picture of God remains small. The problem with the Israelites in the passage is they don't hold these two things together. They only think he's loving. That's why they think they can get away with stepping over his boundaries. They've cut the picture in half. And I'm no mathematician, but I know that when you cut something in half, you make it smaller. When you only see God as loving and not fierce, you become arrogant. You think you're bigger than you actually are. And you expect God to love your sin. And when you only see God as fierce, you become self-deprecating. You think you're a lost cause. 
and you think God hates you for you and not for your sin. It's so important then that these qualities of God are held together. That he's both loving and fierce. And that's what we see from 3.16 to 18. Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I'll spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you'll again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who don't. See, smack bang in the middle of God's words of judgment towards these arrogant Israelites, Malachi inserts this description of how some of the Israelites have reacted to what God said. These few Israelites have have seen that God's not just loving, but that he's fierce too. They fear him because they know he's got every right to obliterate them for their wickedness. But they also honor his name because they know he's compassionate and forgiving. They see God as both fierce and loving, and it, it results in them having a big picture of God. And this pleases God. And how do I know he's pleased? Verse 17, On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, on that day they'll be my treasured possession. I'll spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you'll again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. God calls these Israelites righteous. No more than that, he he says he's going to spare them. He's going to have compassion on them. He's going to make them his treasured possession. And a a treasured possession is the difference between strangers and friends. More than that, it's the difference between my own children and someone in the street. And that's the distinction that God makes here. The righteous, the the people with a big picture of him, are those he'll have compassion on like a father to a son. And the wicked, the people who want to make God look small, Well, they're the ones he's going to reject. It's a massive contrast. And and we see this contrast again in 4 verse 2. Chapter 4 verse 2. For you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I access the Lord Almighty. God's going to have compassion on the righteous and he's going to reject the wicked. And this distinction will be made clear on the day when the son of righteousness comes. Because what he's saying is is this son who will come will, will bring blazing heat, powerful enough to incinerate those with a small view of God. And at the same time, this son will bring healing and compassion to those who have a big picture of God, to those who fear God revere and honor him and not only will these people god's treasured possession 
who have a big picture view of God, not only will they experience healing from this sun, but this sun will also lift them up. They won't be trampled on. They won't become ashes under the soles of feet. No, the righteous will be lifted up. And it'll be so good. He says it'll be like calves frolicking in a field after a satisfying meal. Isn't that just such a beautiful picture? And it's quite the contrast, isn't it, to to what the arrogant have been doing. So the wicked and arrogant, those with a small picture of God, they've been moving God's boundaries to suit themselves. They think that, that by doing that, their lives will be blessed. They, they think they're prospering. They think they're putting God to the test and getting away with it. Well, we've already seen that that's going to end in their destruction. The contrast then is that for those who have a big picture of God, for the righteous who fear, revere and honor God, a time's coming when they'll frolic like calves. A life's coming where they'll be so satisfied, so well fed on God's goodness that it will be as if boundaries don't even exist to them. They'll frolic because they'll finally be free. Free from human burdens. Free from the evil and wickedness that required boundaries in the first place. They'll be free and they'll frolic like well-fed calves. Isn't that such a beautiful picture? But when will this day come? That's the question the Israelites are hanging on. When will this son of righteousness come? When will the righteous be lifted up and given this freedom? And when will the wicked be incinerated and turned to ash? Well, God gives these guys a clue from 4 verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. When will the day come? Well, God says they need to wait for the prophet Elijah to come first. That's it. God gives them no more words, no more clues. In fact, God stops speaking altogether. He's silent. And so Israel waits and waits and waits for this Elijah fellow to come. And for more than 450 years, nothing happens. God's silent. Israel's left waiting. Then out of the horrible silence, a strange voice in the wilderness starts speaking. It's John the Baptist. He's the Elijah God spoke of all those centuries ago. And what's this John the Baptist bloke doing? Well, he's baptizing a whole bunch of Israelites in the river. And he's calling them to turn their hearts to God. This is the guy that God spoke about, who'd come before that great and dreadful day. So that must mean that the son of righteousness is almost here. 
And who should come to John to be baptized among the people of Israel? The Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. He comes. And we know from the gospel accounts that that Jesus is the Son of righteousness that Israel's been waiting for, who brings healing in his rays. He heals the sick, he heals the lame, the blind, and he raises the dead. The Son of Righteousness is here in Jesus. And what a great day it is. But in Malachi 4 verse 5, God says that this day is going to be great and dreadful. It's not just meant to be a time of healing for the righteous. But this Jesus, this Son of Righteousness, he's supposed to bring fire. He's meant to embody the big picture of God. He's meant to be both loving and fierce. Yet when we read the gospel accounts, there's, there's heaps of healing. But where's the fire? I mean, we, we see Jesus get, get angry at some religious leader, leaders, but, but is that it? Is that as fierce as he gets? God says the day is meant to be great and dreadful, but it kind of just seems that it's great for some and a little bit bad for others. Well, if that's our view of Jesus, then we've made our picture of Jesus small. And that's a problem. Because Jesus is God's Son. Every attribute of God is an attribute of Jesus. So if having a small picture of God is, is seeing Him as anything less than loving and fierce, then it's the same with Jesus. If we only see Jesus as loving and just a little bit angry, then we don't have a big picture of him. So where do we need to look to get a big picture of Jesus? Well, the place we need to look to see the big picture of Jesus, to see the big picture of God who who promised a day would come that it'd be both great and dreadful, is at the cross where Jesus died. Because that's the day that's both wonderfully great and horrifically dreadful. And it's while Jesus hangs on the cross, nails through his hands and his feet, that we see the God who is fiercely loving. Jesus, though he's fully God and has the power to take himself off the cross and incinerate the wicked people who have nailed him there, remains. He stays there in complete humiliation before the whole world. And he dies. Why? Well, to demonstrate his fierce love. How is it loving? Well, he dies in your place. He dies so that you can live. He dies so that to take your punishment that you deserve for your arrogance and your wickedness. He takes it on himself so that you can be friends with God, so that you can be forgiven, so that you can go from being a stranger in the street to being a child of God, so that you can live with God and enjoy his goodness always. That's how Jesus' death on the cross is loving. So then how is it fierce? It's incredibly fierce because all of the anger, the wrath, God has towards our wickedness and evil and arrogance 
Jesus says, enough's enough. I hate how evil these people have become. So I'm going to grab evil by the throat. I'm going to crash tackle it off a cliff and I'm going to put an end to it once and for all. And to make sure that it's over, I'm going to die with it. Then Jesus says with his last breath, it's finished. And he dies. It's a great and dreadful day as Jesus, the Son of God, makes it possible for wicked, arrogant, and evil people to be made right with God as he dies in our place. It's a fierce love that Jesus has for his people. And we see that fierce love not only at the cross, but as at his resurrection too. And his resurrection shows us that although the cross was a great and dreadful day, there's another great and dreadful day coming again when Jesus returns. Jesus is coming back. And that day when it comes, and it's coming soon, when it comes, he'll again demonstrate his fierce love. If your trust's in Jesus, he will take you to your home in heaven. He will take you to your home in heaven where you'll spend your eternity with him in God's presence, frolicking like a well-fed calf. And if your trust isn't in Jesus, he'll condemn you to your eternal fate, where you'll be completely separated from God in the fiery furnace of hell. When Jesus returns, the distinction will be clear. It'll either be heaven or hell, frolicking or fire. So how should we live now as we wait for that day? I've got four things for us to consider as we wait for the great and dreadful day of Jesus' return. Number one, if, if you don't yet trust in Jesus, now's the time to put your trust in him because he's coming soon. Number two, if you do trust in Jesus, keep your picture of God big by regularly looking back to the cross. Keep looking back to the power of Jesus that's displayed on the cross. His fierce ability to completely rob Satan of his power and his incredible love that kept him hanging on the cross to die so that you'd never have to taste death. As you wait for Jesus to return, keep your picture of God big by regularly looking back to the cross. Number three, keep your hands busy by serving God while you wait for Jesus to return. So serving is a big part of what's going on in the lives of the righteous in Israel in our passage. We see in 3 verse 18, the righteous are the ones who serve God and the wicked are the ones who don't. And it's also again the picture Jesus gives us. He tells us that because his return will come like a thief in the night, we should keep ourselves busy serving God. So we won't be found doing the wrong thing on the day the judge returns. Also, as you serve, remember that 
that our time of frolicking, our time of utter joy, it's not now. Wickedness and evil is still present in the world. So most of the time, serving is going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. But that's no excuse not to do it. Instead, all the more, we should do it with our eyes fixed on the cross, remembering what Jesus went through to give us a future of eternal joy and frolicking. As you wait for his return, keep your hands busy by serving God. And finally, number four, watch your heart for arrogance and pray against it. Remember, arrogance is what makes you think God's smaller than he actually is and makes you think that you're bigger than you actually are. As you wait for Jesus to return, pray against your own arrogance. Because just as there was a day when Jesus showed his fierceness and love at the cross, there'll be another day like it soon when he'll show the same fierceness and love when he returns. So as you wait for that day, Watch your heart for arrogance and pray against it. Let's spend some time together now in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you are a big God. You are so much bigger than we, we think you are. You are fierce and you are loving. And thank you that you showed us how fierce and loving you are through your son Jesus as he died on the cross. Fiercely loving us, dying in our place and putting an end to our wickedness and arrogance. We know that another day is coming soon when Jesus will return and he will show us his fierce love once more. Where the righteous will be lifted up to be with him and the wicked will be condemned to be separated from you forever. We pray as we wait for that day, you would help us to serve. Keep our hands busy. We pray that as we wait for that day, you would would help us to pray regularly against the arrogance in our hearts. Help us to not be arrogant, but to keep a big picture view of you, Lord God, as we continue to reflect on what Jesus did for us at the cross. We praise you and we thank you for all of these things. In the name of your son, Jesus, for his glory. Amen.